I'm not sure at what young age I became frozen with the knowledge, certainty, and horror that my mother would die one day. Spared the passing of my father, the captain, by my status as a fetus, I was cowering in the womb when my mother found my father dead in his chair. Polly told me the story when I was old enough to hear it. She was smoking a cigarette, a habit I feared and detested. One of my earliest memories was reaching up and trying to snatch a cigarette from her lips. Even then, I knew my enemy. But she was too fast for me. And by the time I heard the story of my father's death, I'd mostly given up trying. So I just sat watching the trail of smoke. The captain was once a Navy man. You know that. Anyway, he got this wooden lobster from the Philippines when he met Ferdinand Marcos. Another story. But when he died, the lobster was sitting there in his lap. I guess he'd taken it down from the wall to admire it just before the stroke got him. And that's what happens when you die. It's no more complicated than that, if you're lucky. She took a long puff, and the smoke spiraled toward the ceiling, her eyes bright. My mother never cried, at least not in front of me. Instead, her green eyes got greener, more sparkly, as though the tears were fuel for that color and nothing else. She had conceived me in something close to a bona fide miracle, when she and her soon-to-be-late husband of thirty-seven years consummated their love for the last time. From the absurdity of that union came the news that my mother received from her doctor three days after my father's funeral. Polly, in her late fifties, was due to have one more child in the year 1992. Willow. Me. The doctor advised her to terminate the pregnancy. She advised the doctor to drop dead and mind his own business. Eight months later, I was born. My family already gone like a train pulled out of a station. My father dead. My brother and sister grown and gone. Polly was old and tired and cranky, and yet she had to start over. A new generation of parents had moved into the neighborhood, remodeling the houses around her as hers fell apart. Old enough to be my grandmother, she brought me up with the same methods she'd used with her other children, folksy southern wisdom and distinctly custom-made punishments. Which explained why, on this brisk April morning, we were barreling toward my school in a two-tone Impala, Polly driving, me riding shotgun, and a falcon in a cage in the back seat. Polly had found the falcon through an old fishing buddy of hers and had managed to procure its rental for free. Please, I begged Polly one last time. I'm sorry. Don't go to school with that falcon. I was ten at the time, and Polly sixty-eight. We were at a light. The brakes squealed a bit, and she glared at me. She had on her homeowner's association power suit, a pale, pearl-colored dress with round buttons, a small silk handkerchief in the breast pocket, and medium heel shoes. She'd rubbed them down with a cheesecloth earlier that morning to take out the scuff marks. She was a small, slim woman, petite, with a delicate face, 
and remarkably smooth skin for a woman her age. The result, perhaps, of the homemade mixture of rose water and black currant seed oil she faithfully slathered on at night. She wore no makeup except for a burgundy lipstick, in the shade of a knowing glare. She had worn the same hairstyle for decades, a soft bowl around her head, and had kept her hair, more or less, the same shade of light brown, although she had dyed her hair the night before. Either through agitation or distraction, she had left it with a certain orangey tone that she had noted with exasperation, but did not have time to address. Orangey hair and red, red lipstick. They did not go together. Like two flowers that clash in a bouquet, the configuration was wrong, and I was somehow to blame for it, too. Did you hear me? I asked. I'm sorry. But she was unmoved. No one calls my daughter a liar, she said, leaning on the word in a way that made me miserable, because I was, in fact, a liar. And I had told some lies, and even worse, some truths, about my mother to my classmates. In my defense, she was great fodder, and this was years before she killed our neighbor. I sighed, giving up. Once she had determined a punishment, she never deviated, so it was hopeless to ask. I turned around and looked at the falcon. Polly's friend had shown her how to take it out of the cage and wear the leather protector on her shoulder. The falcon had white feathers with brown spots, a yellow, world-weary head, and a dangerously curved beak. It stared back at me. The falcon, no doubt, was equally unamused by the situation. Just tell me, Polly said, that saying I hunted with a falcon was the biggest lie you told. It was not.